You are listening to the Galena Missions Podcast, the preaching ministry of Galena Bible Church. Follow along as we study God's Word together. All right, go ahead and grab your Bible and join me in 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. We are wrapping up our uh, three-week series on Advent. Next Sunday will be Christmas. Um, which is not the coming, it's the celebration of the, the reality of that first coming. Um, one of the things about being a pastor is you always want to try, at least, to expose your congregation to the important things. Like if, if there's a, you know, a list almost of kind of bullet points of theology that you, you want people in your ministry, if they've been with you long enough, to be able to say, yep, I've, I've been instructed on that, and I've learned about that, and I've been taught on that. Um, and I think some of that is, you know, we're all products of our upbringing. <clears throat> and um, I can remember early on, even in, when I was in seminary, I was learning some fairly fundamental uh, biblical truths that I, at least personally, do not remember ever hearing being taught to me directly about um, certain things. And uh, then there were other things that I learned that I was pretty sure I was like dead set on. I know this is how it works and this is what the Bible says on this subject and that's just the way that it is. And it wasn't until I actually started uh, diving into Scripture where I was just going like, wait, wait, maybe what I was actually taught was what other people thought rather than actually just what the Scriptures had to say themselves. So I'm going to give my age, for those that didn't know, I was born in 1982, so for some of you that's old, for some of you that's not very old, Uh, and I was born in a quintessential American Southern Baptist home, which means that one of the uh, main tenets of theology that I was taught from a very early age was dispensational premillennialism. Now, Most of you have no idea what in the world that is. Um, And I didn't know what it was either. Um, I just thought it was what the Bible taught about the end of all things. uh, About end time stuff. And... um, Uh, what I did know was that Jesus was coming again and if you weren't sure that you were sure that you were absolutely sure that you were completely and totally sure that you were saved you were going to be left behind when the rapture came and it scared the bejesus out of me that's one of those Christian cuss words that you're allowed to use um So much so that as a kid, I had a regular recurring nightmare that the rapture would happen and I would be left behind. Um, It even played into Christmas for me because one year I bought my mom's slippers that had a goose on it and the goose was wearing a, a, a collar that had a jingle bell, a real jingle bell on it, so that I could hear her walking around the house. And if I could hear her walking around the house, then... She had not been raptured and I had not been left behind. Uh, Absolutely petrifying and terrifying. Today, depending on your church background, you may have not thought very much at all about end times theology. You may not have thought at all about Jesus' second coming. That's just not a big part of your upbringing and your expectation of church. For others of you, it was huge. 
uh, depending on what your background was. It was every other sermon. It was workshops and, pl- and posters and movie premieres and uh, church showings of those kind of things. Oftentimes for those, their definition or their theology of end times theology is more shaped by church pop culture uh, like the Left Behind series or the movie series that's coming out by the same name um, or books that were... Um, by a guy by the name of Hal Lindsey called Late Great Planet Earth uh, and those kind of things. Uh, and in both of those scenarios, it's just one of those things of this is the way that it is or, well, I don't know, it just is kind of out there and we've never actually wrestled with what the Scriptures have to teach about the second advent, the second coming of Christ. And what I want us to wrestle with this morning um, is the reality that because of the certainty of Christ's first advent, we can look with certain hope to the second advent for the purpose of holy living now. That's the purpose of it. This morning I'm going to show you four Uh, We're not going to dive deep into these because this is not a conference and this is not a a deep Bible study, but I don't want anybody to leave Galena Bible Church at any point in time and say, I never heard about this thing before. I've never seen this before or whatever. Um, So I'm going to expose you to the four main um, theological views of end times theology. uh, And I'm not going to tell you which one's right. I'm just going to expose you to those. And then we're going to go to some things that Scripture say are certainly true. And then we're going to take a look at our specific text today and for what that means. Uh, the first view is this. It is called amillennialism. Amillennialism. So this is a lot of Latin that's thrown in there. This term, millennialism, is going to be a term that you're going to hear in all four of these things. This comes from Revelation chapter 20, specifically, where uh, when the Apostle John is having his vision of heaven and his vision of the future and those kind of things, he sees, uh, you know, the whole uh, mark of the beast and the, the serpent and the virgin and all these kind of things. And then he describes this thousand years in which... Christ rules and reigns over the earth and Satan is put into shackles and and thrown into the pit and he has no rule or control over the earth for this thousand year period. And There's a resurrection that happens at the beginning of it and a resurrection that happens at the end of it and the picture that is painted there of this millennial kingdom, a kingdom on earth that Jesus is ruling as He's there and this is in Revelation chapter 20. And this is the, there's other passages. Isaiah has, doesn't say millennium, which is just literally a thousand years. That's what that means. Um, Isaiah doesn't say the word millennium or use a thousand years as a term, but he describes a period of peace that is taking place in the world. Uh, that is, uh, it appears that God is ruling and reigning, but there's this still evil that's still in the world and there's some things that just aren't right and some stuff that's messed up and uh, and so it, it looks like maybe there's something related to that and that and in Daniel and these kind of other things. Amillennialists have the view that there is no future millennium. Meaning, they take 
the passages in Revelation and the passages in Daniel and the passages in Isaiah to be prophetic in nature or uh, um, uh, apocalyptic as the writing of Revelation is, meaning that there is a figurative nature to them. Uh, and they would say the same thing of saying, uh, you know, when it describes in Revelation the, the grasshoppers that are coming over that are gigantic and armor plated and stuff, that's not figuratively describing helicopters. That's picture that's something different and so their idea of this is that we uh, after the cross live in the church age where the church is doing what the church is meant to do fulfilling Jesus's great commission into the world making disciples of all nations uh, and that the church age will persist until the second coming of Christ comes when Jesus comes again he will judge the earth and eternity will begin. The, the wicked will be judged to hell. The righteous will be judged to uh, eternal life through Jesus Christ. And that is the beginning of the new heaven and the new earth. So amillennials do not uh, take a hard defining view of that millennial transition. Now notice in this, if you're familiar with a lot of evangelical discussions about end time stuff, there is no rapture in this graphic. There's nothing of a you know, the church being caught up with Jesus or anything like that. It's just Jesus comes back and judgment happens and the new heaven and the new earth takes place. That's amillennialism. The second view is post-millennialism. Post-millennialism. So ah meaning kind of none, no millennium. Post-millennialism um, has this view. It is Christ died, the church age has been going on, uh, and then at some point in time we begin this millennium period. It's an indistinct, not, there's nothing specific that kicks that off or makes that transpire that at some point in time this thousand year, whether that's a literal thousand year or a figurative thousand year, they would say that there is a time period in which things will get better and better and better and better and better and the rule and reign of Christ upon the earth will get better and better and better and better and then Jesus will bodily return to the earth. They would say that through that millennium Jesus is ruling and reigning uh, but He's not ruling and reigning in body form in the world as it lives and then at the end of that millennium then the second coming of Christ will happen. The last judgment will take place. The... Um, Eternity will begin, and so forth and so on. There's debate in post-millennialists whether or not the uh, new creation will take place at the beginning of the millennium or the end of the millennium, but as a general rule, this is the general timeline of post-millennialism. Post-millennialism um, was kind of at its heyday about 120 years ago, uh, and it uh, had significant movement um, for about 100 years within theologians and uh, things like that because of advancements of science and advancements of reading and culture and uh, kind of the, the birth of um, the Renaissance movement and those kind of things. The world seemed to be, people were dying less of plagues rather than more of plagues. Plagues. Uh, there was less wars that were taking place, and so generally speaking, postmillennialism takes root within peoples when things seem to be getting better. And what happened around the beginning of the 1900s that kind of shook everybody? That was like maybe things aren't getting better. It was this war to end all wars kind of a thing. World War One began, followed by World War Two, and on and on. And so this idea that things would get better and better and better began to lose uh, its appeal to people. 
The third view is called classic premillennialism. Classic pre, so post-millennial coming. Jesus' res- second coming comes after the millennium. Premillennialism comes before premillennialism. This is classic uh, premillennialism, uh, and it says that, or the idea of it is, we have the. Uh, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the church age, at some point in time, the tribulation is going to take place. All the bad things that Revelation says will happen. All of the day of judgment or the day of the Lord that Daniel and Ezekiel and, and Isaiah and those saw, that's going to be the judgment that will be taking place on the world, the, uh, the tribulation that will be taking place on the earth, war and famine and earthquakes and hurricanes, and, and it'll just get bad, 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 bad. And then the second coming will take place. Jesus will come back. The church will be caught up with Him, uh, but they will not go to heaven with Him. They will be caught up with Him in the air. Jesus will come to earth, and then the millennium will begin. He will rule and reign. In the classic premillennialism, um, in that period, there are still sinners upon the earth and the righteous amongst the earth and Jesus is there uh, and there's this thousand year or long time period in which Jesus will rule and reign upon the earth, world and at the end of that in classical premillennialism uh, Armageddon will take place the great war where Satan is released from his captors the, the wicked of the earth will try once again to rise up against Jesus and try to overthrow him uh, and he will conquer and rule and reign that will be the final judgment the resurrection of unbelievers and uh, will be uh, will happen. The the uh, dead in Christ and the um, uh, who have been ruling with him, and then the dead that are just dead, the, those that died not knowing Jesus, will be resurrected to life for judgment, and then the second death will occur, and eternity will take place. That is classic premillennialism. I told you you guys haven't really thought much about some of this stuff. Have you? And then the fourth view is. Uh, pre-tribulational pre-millennialism. It gets starts to get really complicated and if you have ever watched a Left Behind series or read the books uh, or grew up in a Southern Baptist church, this is the view that you um, believe. Uh, and it is the idea, again, that the church age takes place uh, and according to um, a man by the name of Darby uh, in the late 1800s who uh, wrote his, or not Darby, uh, Schofield um, he wrote a, uh, a book or a, a Bible called the Schofield uh, Chain Reference Bible. Uh, and he was the one that was the main proponent of this, that pushed this forward. Uh, we live in the church age, and then at some point in time, a secret second coming of Jesus will take place, a secret rapture in which the church will be snapped up out of the church, out of the world. Uh, And then the tribulation will begin and things will get bad. And again, if you've seen the movies or read the books or anything like that, you know that that's how that takes place. The tribulation uh, happens. uh, Millions of people upon the earth die. And then the second coming, the real second coming of Jesus comes where He comes with the church to rule and reign throughout the millennium And then there is a final judgment at the end and eternity begins. Um, One thing to note about this in premillennialism, in pre-tribulation premillennialism, sometimes also just known as dispensationalism. Um, Again, these are you know, if you're in Bible trivia and you need a win, these are big words to be able to throw out. Um, but in this, it interprets the Old Testament passages that Jews 
and the church are not the same, that they are saved differently from each other. So Jews are saved by their obedience to the law and God's covenant promises to the Jews stays as He made the promises to that. And then those outside of that, the church, us, that is a different set of promises, a different set of covenants, a different set of things. It is that church that is raptured up to God in that first rapture. And through the tribulation period and into the millennium, the true Jewish nation, Jewish people, they can get saved during that period. And this is, they believe, God's fulfillment of His covenant promises to the Old Testament Jews that He made in covenant um, with them And as that plays out. Um, I did note as I began to actually learn this that in all of my explanations of dispensationalism as a kid, I didn't know that in their view that anybody could get saved after the rapture had taken place. So it was like, if you missed it, you're just out of luck. And that was actually not what dispensationalists um, believed. It was this idea that they would be snatched out of it. Um, although my view of it, I'm telling, I'm not going to tell you which one you ought to pick. Um, my view of it, this one is a is kind of a, a bit of an affront to the majority world church because this is actually saying that they don't believe that God would allow His church to suffer. And I'm here to tell you that is a very Western view of Christianity because the majority world church suffers greatly. In fact, so much so that the majority world church could say like, yeah, no, we're in the tribulation right now. Uh, that they could be saying that. So these are the main four views of that. And there's some very off-liers, but basically if you've ever met a, uh, a Christian theologian that actually has studied Scripture, they land on one of these four particular uh, views of the church. Today, I want us to take a look at Second Peter chapter 3. And I'm going to move as quickly as I can through this. Um, it's it's heavy stuff, and I'm trying to I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make it interesting. I'm trying. You guys, is this fresh? Is this new to anybody? You guys have never seen this before? Never heard of this before? Okay, a few people. A few people have. Second Peter chapter three verse one begins this. This is Peter writing to the church at large, and Peter says, Dear friends, this is now the second letter I have written to you in both letters. I want to stir up your sincere understanding by way of reminder so that you recall the words previously spoken by the holy prophets and command of our Lord and Savior given through your apostles. Above all, be aware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days scoffing and following their evil desires, saying, Where is His coming that He promised? Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all things have continued as they have been since the beginning of creation. They deliberately overlook this. By the Word of God, the heavens came into being long ago, and the earth was brought about from water and through water. Through these, the world of that time perished when it was flooded. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay His promise as some understand delay, but is patient with you, 
not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming. Because of that day, the heavens will be dissolved with fire and the elements will melt with heat. But based on His promise, we wait for a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. This is the Word of the Lord. The certainty of Jesus' coming was always the encouragement and the motivation of the church throughout the New Testament. When the new church, when new followers of Jesus, when this little fledgling group of the followers of the way or the Christians, when they were suffering, when they were afraid, when they were doubting, when they were persecuted, when they were arrested, when they were being killed, the thing that they turned to again and again and again, the thing that Peter wrote to them, the thing that Paul wrote to them, the thing that John wrote to them, the thing that even the author of Hebrews wrote to them, all of them pointed to one specific thing, the second coming of Christ and the new heavens and the new earth. This promise to them, was that they could stand up in the midst of unbelievable persecution and suffering with a boldness and a certainty that God was in control and that they had nothing to fear. Wherever, whenever persecution, hardship, grief, or loss was experienced by the church, it was the hope of the resurrection and the advent of Christ's second coming that was preached as a truth for weary Christians so that they could rest in it in an absolute certainty. The promise was not, things will get better for you in this life. The promise wasn't, uh, they'll change their mind. Or, uh, you know, the promise wasn't even, if you die well, they'll come to faith in Jesus. The promise was just simply, Jesus came back to life after He was killed, and He ascended to heaven... And when He ascended to heaven, the angels came and told the disciples one specific thing. They said, as He left, so shall He return. Or in the same way that He left, so shall He return. Though we have seen several views of the order of events uh, that are being put forward of how, you know, which, which, you know, does it start here? Does it happen here? Does this happen? Does this not happen? Is this to be taken literally? Is this to be taken figuratively? How is this to be played out? There are some certain realities that Scripture teaches. And some of those are in the text that we just read. Others of those um, are explicitly taught by Jesus Himself and in other places. Again, I, I'm not... This, I'm not doing a whole series on this subject at this moment, um, but I do want us to give a couple of these that we can wrap our hands around and say, we know that the Scripture teaches this to be true. The first is this, Christ will return bodily the same way that He left. The physical return of Jesus. We believe that Jesus will come back 
in the flesh, not spiritually come back or emotionally come back or the idea of Jesus will come back or the teachings of Jesus will come back and we are to embrace those things. No, no, no. We believe that He will come back in the flesh to this earth and touch it again with His physical body and will be a presence here upon this earth and we rest in that uh, truth. The second thing that we know for certain that the Bible teaches is that those that have died prior to Christ's coming will be resurrected to life with redeemed bodies just like Him. When we think of what eternity looks like, it's not us floating around uh, like a Tom and Jerry episode where we're just kind of this see-through thing that plays a harp and has a halo and sits upon a cloud and, and is kind of this amorphous spirit thing. The Bible says that Jesus was the first fruit of those that were coming, the first born of that, and that we will receive bodies like Him. We read about the, the resurrected Jesus and there's truths about Him uh, that are true that we can know, like Jesus ate, and you know people that eat, we're going to eat later on today, and Jesus did that. Spirits don't do that. But there's also things about His resurrected body that don't make sense in the world in which we know. Like the resurrected body of Jesus could do things like walk through a wall and appear and disappear. There were things about Him that were real and true that don't make sense in the world in which we know. And the Bible tells us that we will have bodies like Him when He comes again and brings those that have died beforehand to back to life. The, the resurrection that He promises there. The third thing is that all the actions of this world, good and bad, will be disclosed. For some people, this can be very terrifying. We often uh, you know, talk about the reality of, you know, sometimes we think we're better than we are when we try to compare ourselves with other people. And yet, the reality of that is we don't actually have to expose the reality, the realness of ourselves to the rest of the world, right? Like if, if all of the secret thoughts of your heart and mind were, uh, Britt were to put them up on a, uh, that you had this last week, and Britt were to put them up on a PowerPoint slideshow for the rest of the church to see of what you thought about people and situations and scenarios and things like that, you probably would not feel really comfortable showing up at church on that Sunday, right? And the Bible, yet the Bible teaches this is a reality that all the secret deeds of man, both good and bad, will be disclosed. There is no hiding of anything. Here's the reality of this. Nobody gets away with anything in the world that is to come. And this is a promise that is made over and over and over again in Scripture. Regardless of when the resurrection or resurrections, uh, depending on which view of this you take, when it, regardless of when they take place, all... Christians and non-Christians will be resurrected and judged. Christians will be found to be judged in Christ who was sufficient to cover over their sin and will be judged to eternal life. Those that uh, died apart from Christ will be judged according to their own deeds and will be judged to hell. And this world as we know it, the Scriptures say, will be remade. There will be no separation between heaven and earth. God's space and man's space. They will be one thing.
for all eternity. And it, the world will be as God intended for it to be. There will be no more death. There will be no more sickness. There will be more, no more grief. There will be no more loss. There will be no more tears. We will be uh, ruling and reigning with Christ into eternity in, uh, um, and fulfilling all that God intended for us to fulfill in the world in which He made. These are certainties that the Scriptures describe and the order of how those, some of those transpire and where they fall in the timeline and all of that kind of stuff uh, is matters of great theological debate uh, of which we don't have time for this morning. <coughs> Peter continues in verse 14, he says this, Therefore, dear friends, while you wait for these things, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in His sight, at peace. Also, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him. He speaks about these things in all his letters. There are some things hard to understand in them. The untaught and unstable will twist them to their own destruction as they also do with the rest of the Scriptures. Therefore, dear friends, since you know this in advance, be on your guard so that you are not led away by the error of lawless people and fall from your own stable position but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. All of the things that I've taught you so far, the explanations of the graphs and all that kind of stuff, all of this future Bible knowledge is fascinating for Bible trivia. Uh, you'll win every single time if you got all this information down and all that kind of stuff. But what good is knowing any of this stuff for me tomorrow or this afternoon? End times theology has been conferences and books. In fact, probably if you go to Barnes & Noble today, probably half of the Christian book section that is there will have something related to the subject of end times theology. It's, uh, it's things that uh, people get all, I mean, have gotten all kind of bound up on. Some people have gotten into really weird theology stuff. I, even since we've lived in Galena, uh, there was one big major movement that was had uh, they had done... Uh, used a, um, uh, a method of, quote, Bible study called numerology in which they used the number of words and characters of, of words in Scripture and things like that, that it means certain numbers and that those numbers have certain Jewish meanings and that those Jewish meanings then transcribe into specific dates and times and things. And they had predicted the day and hour of Jesus' second coming and big billboards were purchased and all those kind of things. And that came and that went and that has been the history of a lot of movements in the world. In fact, there's entire denominations uh, that developed, and uh, some we say some of them, I say denominations very loosely, some of those are just uh, cult movements that have birthed off of those that are based on failed prophetic you know, Jesus is coming back on this day at this time and then Jesus didn't come and then this whole thing of that came out of it. Seventh-day Adventism is one of those that came from a movement called Millerites. Uh, um, Joseph Miller was a guy that 
predicted a day, it didn't happen, uh, and he said, oh, my math was wrong, gave another day, it didn't happen. And then they said, oh, well, it actually, Jesus did come back, but he came back spiritually, and so now we're living in this new spiritual age of that, and it birthed what now today is Seventh-day Adventism. Interestingly enough, the same movement also birthed Jehovah's Witness uh, movements that came out of that same thing, a failed uh, second their second coming prediction, the Millerite movement of their so what good is knowing this stuff? What good is studying this stuff? What good is diving in and saying, where do I land on these particular things for me other than to just say, well yeah, I'm very heady in this stuff and I know this information and great and wonderful. So this is the point I want to give to you. If there's a pastoral thing I want you to know about end times theology, it's this. Regardless of where you read it in Scripture, when you read it in Scripture and it says these things will come, a future future pointing promise, a future pointing prophecy, all future prophecy is for present day living. I've said this for years when somebody would, would ask, so what is your view? Where do you land? Are you pre-millennial, millennial what, you know, what are you? Here's Chris Kopp's definition of my theology for end times prophecy. Jesus is coming back in the flesh sooner today than yesterday, so live like He's coming back. Future prophecy is for present day living. I will see Jesus with my own eyes. I will give an account of every thought, every word, every action, every inaction, everything about my life. I will disclose to Him whether I want to do that or not. It doesn't matter. I will give an account before my Jesus. And so my life is to be lived according to that reality, future Today. It stays on my mind, not as a point of fear, but as a point of motivation, as a point of truth, as a point of love. I'm not doing this because I'm afraid of Jesus. I'm doing this in the same way that as I think about my actions and I, I do the things that I do in my home for Michelle because I love her and care about her, I want what I do to mirror the reality of what is inside of my heart towards her. And Jesus is that much more dear to me. The reality of His second coming is something that uh, as we look to the future, it gives us courage to live today according to the way in which Jesus has said, this world works, our life works, our Christian life functions in this way. While you wait for these things, Peter says. Peter's writing this to a church that has lost so much. They've lost their jobs because they were Christians. They've lost their homes and properties. In fact, it's interesting as the, the author of Hebrew, uh, Hebrews, as he writes it, and he describes this picture of the early church and, and their stuff, and he describes them and he says, some of you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. How many of you would be joyful if somebody comes and takes your stuff? And yet that's what he's described the church as. Why? Because they knew, hey, this is only temporary. 
I can do what Jesus asks me to do. I can follow Him the way that He wants me to follow. I can walk according to His Word because I know for certain that because He came once and lived the life that He lived and died the death that He died and rose again and went to heaven and made a promise that because I can have certainty that He did that, He said He's coming again and He's going to make all things right. And so, if you're going to take my property because I'm a Christian, then let it be. It's a fascinating thing when you read about the early church. Specifically, uh, many of those that were specifically martyred because of their faith. And there were Christians that went into the arena knowing that they were, their death was not going to be fast. Their death was going to be incredibly slow for the pleasure of others. And yet, they sang and prayed and died with the absolute certainty that Jesus said when He came again, they would raise with Him. While you wait for these things, what are we to do? What are we to do as we read the stories in Syria, in Pakistan, in Iran, in Afghanistan of church members and brothers and sisters in Christ dying today? We sh- it's again one of these things that I, you know, the, the idea that God would never allow His church to suffer and that's why the rapture is going to happen and the church is going to get snatched out of it. And I'm going, have we not learned anything of the last hundred years? That more Christians have been martyred in the last hundred years than the previous 1900 combined? It just hasn't happened around us. That's why we, we just can't conceive of it. Peter writes to this church and says, while you wait for these things to take place, while you wait for His second coming, while you wait for the destruction of this world and Him to make all things new, the judgment of the wicked and the restoration of the righteous, what should we do? Well, first, as we think on these things, he says that God's patience is for your salvation. God's patience is for your salvation. Jesus hasn't come back yet. And we cry with the church, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. But we should not cry that more than we cry out, God, my neighbor doesn't know you. Give me an opportunity to share the hope of Jesus with them. My cousin doesn't know you. Give me the opportunity to share the hope of Jesus with them. My student doesn't know you. Give me the opportunity. My enemy doesn't know you. Give me the opportunity to share the gospel with them. He says, think on this thing. God is not slow as some define slowness. We're just sitting here going like, come on, God, let's get with this program. Let's, you know, if I was in charge of these things, man, we'd, you know, this would, you know, it'd be two-day delivery from on Amazon, the new heavens, the new earth, right? You know, we wouldn't be Alaska thing. Anybody else really like Amazon has gotten slow, like so slow. And we're sitting here going like, come on, God, two-day delivery. That's what we want. Not Amazon 10-day, 20-day, 2,000 years. Come on, hurry up. Let's get this going. God's going, yeah. Do you know there's still over 300 people groups in the world that in the 2,000 year history of the church have never known one single Christian? Entire people groups. Ethnic cultures, language, indigenous peoples of the world. There's over 300 of them 
that as far as missiologists have studied, have never known one single Christian. There's over 6,000 unreached people groups in the world. Less than a 2% of them are professing Christians. 6,000. Some of those people groups are in the millions of people. Be born, live their entire life, die, live a life of sin, never hear the gospel. God's patience is for your salvation. That God was patient, even for you. And so while we wait, we thank God for His patience because He gives us another chance to share the hope of Jesus with people that need to hear it. I think one of the statements that has been thrown around in Christian circles far too often that just needs to die because St. Francis of Assisi, when he said it, this is not how we have interpreted it, it is not what he meant. Uh, what was said was, and you've probably heard it before, preach the gospel and if necessary, can anybody finish it? Use words. Preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. I understand the point of it, right? Live godly lives in front of people. But here's the thing it's good news. When was the last time you turned on a news channel and the person did an interpretive dance for the traffic? Right? They used words. It's a good news gospel. We tell people the truth of this Jesus and they need to be told. They don't need to just look at you and say, what's different about you? Tell me. It can happen. But that's not how it was designed to happen. God's patience is for your salvation. Second, our waiting is not idle. Our waiting is not idle. There's been a statement uh, saying going around uh, for a number of years around this, uh, you know, people that get really into eschatology. That's another one of those, you know, twenty-dollar words for stuff. End times theology. Uh, that they are so heavenly-minded that they are of no earthly good. So heavenly-minded that they're of no earthly good. Friends, it ought not be this way. Our waiting is not idle. He says specifically. Uh, that while you're waiting for these things, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in His sight, living in peace. Sanctification. So we are justified, made just as if we never sinned, made right before the Lord at our salvation. It is a transforming event. But how many of you guys know that when you got saved, you weren't fixed? Anybody know that one, reality? It's not like the Matrix, right? When they plugged it back in the back of your head, all of a sudden you knew jujitsu in a half second. That's not the way that Christianity worked. In the moment you are saved, your sins, past, present, future, everything is blotted out. You are redeemed in Christ Jesus. But how many of you still know that you have a propensity for sin? You have some sin in your own life that the longer that you walk with Jesus, you just didn't even know how deep it was in your own soul. That the longer you walk with Jesus, you might have, when you got saved, you were like, yeah, I'm a prideful person. And then 20 years in, and you're looking in your deep, in the depths of your soul, and you're going like, man, I had no idea how prideful I was. 
And that wrenching out of that is the war that we live in our flesh as we say, God, I want to be more like Jesus. I want to be more like You have called me to be. And, it's, and here's the beauty of this in the Gospel. Us doing that, us wrestling out our own sin, us taking off the old man, as Paul says, and putting on the new self in that, that's not us earning salvation. It's us living in fellowship with Jesus in the same way as I described uh, Michelle and our marriage with each other, our walk, our life through that. Uh, Shell's married to a totally different dude than she married 21 years ago. I've changed. And I'm married to a totally different chick than I married 21 years ago because she's changed. Because we've been constantly realizing different aspects about ourselves and even changing ourselves for each other. This growth process is called sanctification and it is uh, our Christian life is not to be idle. We don't get saved and sit on our hands and say, boy, I can't wait for Jesus to come back and do nothing. The day of your salvation is not the finish line. The day of salvation is the day that the gun finally went off and you're starting the race. And it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. We run and we race in this and we throw off all the hindrances as we run this race. But sometimes we don't know what the hindrances are. We don't know what the sins are. We have to grow into those things. And it's a joy to do so. Our waiting is not idle. He says that we are, uh, we are to grow without spot or blemish, living at peace. This is belief and behavior. We change the things that we believe. We change our behavior accordingly. This is us walking in belief and repentance. Walking in faith in Him. Believing what He had to say. Christianity, Christianity is not this. I believe, therefore I belong. It is, or I behave, so I belong. Christianity is, I belong... So I want to know and do. I belong. So I want to know and do. Sanctification is grace made real in your life. It's an incredible thing for, the, for God to say, I've saved you and I love you just the way you are. But I love you too much to let you stay like that. That's an incredible thing. We don't get all fixed up and then God loves us. He takes the mess that is our life and He says, man, I love you and I love you too much to let you stay like this. And so, for days and weeks and months and years and decades, from the moment of salvation to the moment of our death or His coming, He conforms us into the image. It's not an idle period. And third is this. The second coming is for our boldness against the seduction of error. The second coming, the future promise, is for our present day boldness against the seduction of error. He says this in two ways. He says at the beginning of that where he described, he says, know this for certain, that in the last days there will come scoffers. There will come those that will be like, you guys are idiots. What are you waiting for? Where is His coming? It's been 2,000 years. 
And you're still sitting here. You think He's real? You think He's coming? They, you know, sun comes up, sun goes down, wars happen, life goes on. It's been this way for as long back. Uh, go back oral tradition. Go back on the cave drawings. Go back all... It's just the life goes on the way that it is. And you guys are waiting on this. And it becomes seeds of doubt. Do we, do we know? Are we sure? And then secondly, he says in verse 17, Therefore, dear friends, since you know this in advance, you know all this is coming, be on your guard so that you are not led away by the errors of lawless people and fall from your own stable position, but grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world's always coming at us with something new. Something new. You know, to hold that Christian belief, to hold those truths that Scripture make plain, to hold those things out, man, that's just... That's so antiquated. It's so old. You need to get with the times. You need to get on the right side of history. You need to believe these things. You need to... And on and on and on the thing goes. And Peter points to this reality of the second coming of Christ as something to say... It gives us boldness to stand against the seduction. Because here's the thing. It is easy to cave to the present world's bend against the things of God. It's easy to do that. Because that's what everybody wants to do. Everything. It's, it makes it, that's what the world wants to do. It wants to pull us back into this reality. As if Jesus isn't coming back. As if we won't give an account. As if all of our actions won't be disclosed. As if what we think matters more than what the God of the universe thinks. It's for our boldness. Not our arrogance, mind you. It's for our boldness. And this is the distinction I definitely want us to have on this. Is that we can err on this truth of Jesus' second coming with an air of arrogance. Against them, the other, those that are outside. We're in, they're out. We'll be saved, they'll be condemned. It's not arrogance, it is a boldness to say, I can believe what the scriptures say, I can stand firm in this truth, I can face down the roaring lion as it comes to eat me and my family in the Colosseum, I can joyfully give up my property as you confiscate it because I'm a Christian. I can boldly stand against being passed over for a job promotion because we don't party and drink with the rest. I can boldly continue to love my family when they don't love me back because I'm one of those church people. I can boldly walk in the truth of what Scripture says about sin and reality in a world that is taking those things and saying, does the Bible really say? It sounds very much like what Satan said the first time. Did God really say that the sin that you like is really that bad? Is it really, is it really sin? And I can walk in boldness, not arrogance to say... 
Yes, I once walked in a way in which I didn't know this truth. I walked in darkness. But the advent of Christ, the first coming of Christ, says those that walked in light and darkness have seen a great light. That's what John 1 says. And the advent of Christ into this world, if it wasn't for that, if it wasn't for Christmas, if it wasn't the fact that Jesus came in the flesh, walked on this earth, lived a sinless life, and died a death He did not deserve, if that did not happen, then sure, live however you want to live. Eat, drink, be merry. Choose your truth. Live your life. Live for your own pleasure. Do whatever you want to do. But the first advent of Jesus and His promise of His second tells us that our life is not our own. And so we get to live with boldness against the seduction of this world that does try to draw us away from the truth of what Jesus teaches. Dear friend, This is serious. This isn't flippant. For some, even some Christians, the things that we've described here, how this is going to play out, Jesus is coming back, and is there a millennium, is there not, is there a kingdom, is there all those kind of things, it feels almost like sci-fi-ish. Can we really believe this? Can Can we really know that these things are going to transpire? And the reason we can say yes is because Jesus already came once. And He proved He was who He said He was. And because He proved who He said He was and said He's coming back and these things will transpire when He comes back, it means that what He said is true and we just have a choice. Are we going to believe Him? follow Him and love Him as our greatest treasure? Or are we going to say, no, I don't want any of that. I don't want any part of that. The only way we can do that is to actually look at the historical reality of His first coming and have to lie to ourselves and say, it didn't really happen. 2,000 years ago, there wasn't a baby born in a stable in a town called Bethlehem. His birth wasn't announced by angels keeping watch or, or to shepherds keeping watch in their fields by night. That there was no uh, King Herod that slaughtered babies in that town because he wanted to obliterate that. That there was no man that walked on this earth for 30 years serving as a carpenter and a general laborer that He didn't gather 12 disciples, that He didn't perform miracles that were verified by over 500 people after His uh, death, that those disciples that followed Him went to their horrific deaths saying, we saw Him do all of it. And you can kill us. But we won't change our story. We have to say none of that happened. We have to say that when He died... That He just died. And the whole resurrection that took place afterwards that was seen by hundreds of people and attested by people throughout the years. That the historical proofs of that, I don't know, we made them up. 
That's the only way that we can get to the reality that, yeah, He's not coming again. And we're not going to have to give an account. And that the Joseph Stalins and Hitlers of this world, they're just going to get away with it. And so can you. Eat, drink, be merry, live your life, for tomorrow you die. There's nothing that matters. But we know because of His first coming that His second coming is sure. And it gives us an absolute bold certainty to live the kind of life that He died so we could live today. And to plead with people who don't yet know Him. To know Him. To repent, believe the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, as we celebrate this week His first advent, don't lose the impact of the promise of His second advent. That He's coming again. He's coming for you. That's not something to be afraid of. It's something to find great, deep joy in. We will not just know about Him. We will know Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for Your Word. This is a heavy one. And so God, I pray this morning that You would help us um, to live in light of that second coming. Boldness to speak the truth of love. I pray God as my friends this morning wrestle with these things. Holy Spirit, I pray that You would be surgical in their heart. If there's doubts, if there's questions. Lord, help them to see Your great grace. That You lived and died for them. And God, give us boldness to reject the subtle seductions of this world's error. To cling to You, knowing it will cost us. It will cost us friends. It will cost us family. You even told us so. But not to lose heart. Because we get You. God, we thank You for Christmas. We thank You that it gives us a certainty to live following You. We love you so much, God. That's your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've been blessed by the hearing of God's Word. Feel free to connect with us at www.galenabiblechurchak.com and subscribe to this podcast at iTunes or at galenamissions.podbean.com.